Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Hello and welcome to the Stem Cells at Lunch Digested podcast. I'm Ella Hubber, a PhD student at the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. And today I am joined by Madeline Lancaster, a group leader at the Cell Biology Division of the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge. Thanks for joining us, Madeline. Thank you. It's really a pleasure. So just to start us off, could you give us the elevator pitch of what you and your lab are interested in? Yep. So we are broadly interested in human brain development. So we are interested in understanding what is unique about our brains and how it gets to be so unique. So I believe you're doing this using neural or cerebral organoids. Um, So could you just explain to us what they are and how you make them? Sure. So basically, of course, we're interested in in questions that are really unique to humans, which means we need a human model. And, you know, we don't want to go and do experiments with actual living human beings. So we need something in a dish. And so that's uh, exactly what we what we work with. We work with um, essentially little miniature sort of brain tissue blobs (laughs) um, in a dish. And these are... um, basically mimicking the very early stages of brain development. They come from a special special types of stem cells um, that develop according to their own intrinsic developmental programs in the same way that a brain would develop, you know, in an actual embryo, except these are developing in a dish. And um, we use these tissues to look at very early events of brain development that help set up the blueprint for, you know, the later highly complex and enlarged human brain. Great. So actually, I saw a tweet from you a couple of weeks ago. Um, You tweeted a picture of your lab book from about 10 years ago from when you were a postdoc in Jürgen Noblick's lab. And it was the initial experiments that made these cerebral organoids. But that wasn't actually the plan, was it? Exactly. Yes. So it was it was a, a classic um, story of, of scientific serendipity. Um, I was hoping, actually, when I started in Jürgen's lab, and I have to say this was the second experiment I did in his lab. It was right at the very beginning. I was hoping to, um, to do a genetic screen using a pretty, you know, an, an emerging technology at that time. Now it's very well established called neural, neural rosettes. And these are basically where you take um, very immature neural stem cells, so the stem cells that will give rise to the brain, and you put them in a dish and they will, um, you know, stick to the dish and make uh, and start, you know, dividing and multiplying and eventually generating neurons. Um, And I wanted to use those cells to look at, you know, a a broad array of different genes that might be involved in, in neural stem cell decisions. Uh, But what happened with that first experiment was um, uh, a a bit of a failure at first. Um, Many of the cells that I was uh, that I was working with just didn't stick to the dish that I put them in um, and instead formed these very large floating aggregates. And in fact, in my lab book, I didn't even know what to call them. I just in some places in the lab book, I called them colonies or aggregates or whatever. But um, they, a few days later, I came back and saw these absolutely beautiful, um, structures growing and that completely, um, you know, changed the course of my postdoc. Wow. And carrying on a very long tradition of scientific discoveries being often completely accidental. <laughs> yeah. 
But I mean, unplanned or not, you've now been working with these organoids for 10 years. How have you seen the system change over the last decade? And is the technology currently at a place where you believe it recapitulates human brain development and structure well? Mm-hmm. So definitely, I mean, the, the the easy part was was that first experiment. The hard part came afterwards in trying to figure out how to do this in a reliable and a robust way, um, how to generate tissues of particular regional identities, you know, in in a reliable way that would have the structure, uh, structural characteristics that that mimic early brain development, um, and that that was obviously the tricky part, you know. And so that took obviously a few years to figure out. So that first experiment was done in 2010. We published the paper in 2013. So it took a few years, of course, to work out um, things like media formulations. And actually timing is what we found to be the most critical component of this of, of these protocols. Is, 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 it's, I, I, I think it's the best analogy I have is that it's like gardening. And, you know, when you plant a seed... You know, you're not building a plant. The plant is building itself, but you are providing nutrients and oxygen, you know, and sunlight and and all of that. Um, but you need to you need to provide those nutrients according to the needs of the plant. You don't want to overwater your plant. You don't just blindly water the plants every single day; it will die. And you also don't ignore it. And so that's exactly what these organoids need as well. Is uh, sort of this. Uh, kind of a green thumb. You need to um, uh, provide the appropriate nutrients at the time that the organoids need that. And if you don't time it appropriately, uh, according to the needs of the, of the organoid, then you, you don't end up with nice, reliable um, brain tissues. Uh, you end up with other things like heart tissue or something. So it's pretty remarkable how important timing is. Um, and then obviously, of course, figuring out exactly what the needs are, what nutrients, uh, these organoids need. And so it's, uh, it's definitely an evolving field field that continues to, to grow. Um, and, it, and I'm really happy to see the developments that have been made by others now who've entered this field and have improved these methods and made them even more reliable and applied them to different brain regions, making all kinds of different brain regions. And I, I want to especially emphasize the work of Yoshiki Sasai, who was very early in this field and even you know earlier than, than our work showed that you could make cortical regions and retinal, so eye regions, uh, very beautiful, beautifully in the dish and continued to do this um, until his unfortunately untimely death. So this this field has has really blossomed and i'm delighted to see the the work that others have have contributed so with this kind of growing field this uh, growing confidence in using cerebral organoid systems i believe you are also interested in looking at neurodevelopmental disorders so which disorders are you interested in and how can you use cerebral organoids to study these so we're specifically interested in brain size, primarily. And one of the reasons we're interested in that is not only because there are a number of disorders that affect brain size, but also because it is probably, I think, the most obvious feature that sets our brains apart. So um, our brains are around three times larger than our closest living relatives, the other apes, chimpanzees and gorillas. Um, uh, but also but are you know extremely enlarged compared with, for example, rodents. Um, and this enlargement is, you know, what, what most people think is responsible for our higher cognitive capabilities. So when you start having disruptions in brain size, that starts having effects on 
you know, cognition. And there are disorders that affect brain size, like microcephaly, where brain size is too small. And many of those patients have intellectual disabilities, have things like autism uh, or autism spectrum disorders, um, and uh, often have severe uh, conditions like epilepsy. And then there's also disorders where the brain is actually too large, um, which is called macrocephaly. And these patients also have cognitive um, uh, issues often. Um, and so it's clear that size is important, both from an evolutionary standpoint and from a, you know, a, a disease pathogenesis standpoint. And we're interested in understanding what normally helps control brain size and make it the right size for humans, not too big and not too small. And so you, you touched on it there, but you're currently doing comparative evolutionary studies. So investigating the differences between human and non-human uh, brain development. Why do you see these size differences and what are the other key differences between our brains and non-human apes? Yeah, so the, we've, we first approached this question of human brain size from a very sort of um, just sort of let's look and see kind of <laughs> approach. Um, we just managed to acquire a, a, an array of different uh, cell lines from other non-human apes. So we, we've managed to acquire uh, gorilla and chimpanzee cell lines and generate organoids from them and compare them with human. And um, initially we just sort of looked at them and saw, well, this is interesting. They look to be a little bit larger in humans. And we found that this the size difference actually appears very early, much earlier than we uh, expected, to be honest. So even before any neurons are made. Um, and looking a bit deeper, we found that it, the, the difference in size is actually because of a difference in the, the tissue architecture and the way the cells are positioning them, you know, within this tissue and, and particular cell shape. And we found a, a, a difference in shape of these progenitors that helps then impact the numbers of these progenitors. So that essentially what happens is humans have a little bit more of these progenitors to start with. So they have a larger what we call founder stem cell pool. So that then once they switch to making neurons, either in humans or in non-human apes, the humans have just a little bit more to start with. And that then leads to an increased number of neurons later on. Um, and so this it's really remarkable how a very simple difference in cell shape can have quite dramatic effects actually um, on neuron number and brain size. I think Actually, for my last question, um, I just want to end on a non-science question. It seems like you're you're quite engaged, I think, with science outreach. I mean, you use Twitter to talk about science. You've done a TED Ed talk, um, and you're doing this podcast. Do you enjoy doing this kind of public engagement outreach? Do you think it's uh, you know important to do as a scientist? I think it's uh, a, a, I think it is a very important part of our jobs as scientists. I mean, we are. Um, here because of the public. <laughs> um, and we owe it to, um, I think, to everybody in society to communicate what we're doing. And also, I, actually, I just really enjoy it. I, I think, I mean, I have to think back when I was a kid or, you know, a teenager in high school and, um, you know, started getting excited about science. I mean, it was things like this or like, you know, the Bill Nye show that I used to watch as a kid that really got me excited about science. And I mean, how are you going to how are you going to grow future scientists except by reaching out to them, uh, reaching out to the general public and getting people excited about it? And how are we going to continue making great scientific discoveries except by obviously getting the public excited uh, about it so that, you know, we can continue doing this? I, I completely agree. And 
actually I wasn't a, a child but one of the reasons I ended up going into stem cell research was because I learned about your work during my undergrad because I was so amazed this idea of brains in a dish you know <laughs> oh, that's fantastic to hear that's fantastic to hear so I owe you a personal thank you for that. Also, thank you very much for uh, speaking to me today for the podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Really great. Thanks. That's all we have time for today. If you want to learn more about Madeline's work, please check out the show notes on SoundCloud. See you next time. <laughs> Bye.